Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 99, A Conversation with Abby Match. Abby was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer back in 2020 when she was 35 years old. And shortly after her diagnosis, she found out that she carries a BRCA1 mutation. On today's episode, she shares what her treatment looked like, including chemotherapy, surgery with reconstruction, radiation, and a subsequent decision to get her ovaries surgically removed. We talk about what treatment was like, what parenting a young child was like, and how Abby had the conversation with her daughter about what she was going through. We spent a lot of time talking about life after cancer, including management of osteopenia, transitioning to a plant-based diet, and some of the other lifestyle changes that Abby has made and how she uses these changes really as her medicine, as a way of healing, as a way to deal with the fear of recurrence that she sometimes experiences. Abby is passionate about genetic testing and advocates for genetic testing. And finally, an amazing project that Abby does is that during during her cancer treatment, she started making these beautiful bracelets. She started an account on Instagram called Beating Cancer Together, and she sells these bracelets to fundraise for some amazing organizations, including Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and Jay Screened. And she'll share a lot about all of that on today's conversation. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Abby Match to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Abby, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We had connected on social media, and I wanted to have you on the podcast to really share your story, um, focus on genetic testing, some of the work that you're doing now. Uh, So let's kind of get right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, all about? Yes. I live outside of Philadelphia with my husband and seven-year-old daughter. And I am a speech language pathologist in early intervention, and I currently work. I worked throughout um, treatment as well, um, but it's still it's still something I do through tele-intervention. I'm not yet back in person, but I do enjoy and find so so much reward in helping others, which we'll get into and is part of my uh, part of my personality. Um, And yeah, I was diagnosed at the age of 35 years old with triple negative breast cancer and later found to have the BRCA1 mutation. Can you walk us through how you were diagnosed at age 35? Most people are not having routine screening mammograms at that point. What prompted any imaging and the diagnosis? Yeah. So uh, a year before I was diagnosed, I was having left-sided breast pain. I, I was finding that I couldn't lay on my left side. I couldn't really cuddle with my daughter. It was just very tender. And I thought I found a lump and I went to my annual gynecologist visit and I said, you know, something just feels different and I I'm just in pain. And it was recommended to do a mammogram and a ultrasound to rule something in or out. And the findings were unremarkable. They said, you know, you just have dense fibrous tissue. Well, now I know what that really means, but I just thought it was something, okay, fine, but go on your merry way. And that's that. So that was May, 2019. And then by March, 2020, we were at the height of the pandemic and I was showering and I felt 
something that in that same spot, but it just felt more defined. And I was like, oh no, but I'm a very cystic person. So like I can show you, but no one else will see, but like, I just have cysts like throughout my arm in my armpit area on my sternum. So I was like, well, maybe it's just a cyst that I can't really see. And, um, I had my husband feel it and a couple friends and they're like, it feels similar to what you have. Okay. And, you know, I wasn't rushing anywhere being with COVID. So I let it go. But by July, 2020, it was massive to me. I mean, it, it just grew exponentially. I would say overnight. Um, I went from being able to like touch it with my pointer finger to like grabbing it and jiggling it around. So, well, I couldn't really jiggle. It was pretty hard, but I could fit it in the palm of my hand, I would say. So I rushed to a gynecologist and I said, I just need a breast exam. Can somebody please give me a breast exam? I found something suspicious and there we go. Sure enough, within 24 hours, I knew it was breast cancer. Knowing that and now kind of thinking back to the year that you had had previously, what has that been like? Does that look back? Yeah. I mean, I know I had cancer then I, I just know it. And it's, uh, it's pretty maddening because at that point, when I sat in that office of the gynecologist, I wish somebody would have said to me, you know, we didn't find anything alarming, but you are 30 at the time, 34 and you're of Ashkenazi Jewish descent and you have dense fibrous tissue. Have you ever thought about genetic testing? That's what I wish would have happened because the answer was, well, I did genetic testing before my daughter was born, so I'm fine, right? And now finding out, no, they don't screen for the BRCA mutation and other cancer susceptibility genes. So I wasn't safe from anything related to cancer. You know, my my daughter, my offspring, that was all checked, but not for my Self. So I wish there was a discussion. I wish, I mean, I checked off a box every single time I went that of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, where was the conversation? I mean, I just trusted the doctor and all these years that if there was a necessary conversation around my risk factors, it would have happened. And, and do you happened. have, do you have a family history of breast and ovarian cancer? Zero. I am the first in my family. And we don't know. So we now know it's my mom who's the carrier of the BRCA1 mutation. And when, you know, we really dissected everything and looked at the family tree, she comes from a lot of, there's a lot of men. She had a lot of uncles, not aunts. Mm-hmm. She had six uncles. My, so we think it was my mom's, probably my mom's father's side. So he was one of seven and lots of, lots of men and they had pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. So we, we really feel, um, strongly that it's probably from her father. What's interesting is that, you know, when you look at genetic testing, there's actually been a big push that all Ashkenazi Jewish women and men, you know, should get genetic testing. And the practice right now in the U S is that unless you have a family history of, you know, breast and ovarian and pancreatic and melanoma, and prostate that people don't get offered genetic testing, but they did a study in Israel where they tested everybody beyond what, and and so what they found was they found all these mutations beyond what they would have expected based on someone's family history, Mm. which is, which is interesting. And, And I think part of it is that we, the healthcare system doesn't do a great job of taking family history because we don't really, we're like, oh, is there any history? And we're not saying, well, what about, you know, we're not making that pedigree. We're not making that family tree. And on the, and also a lot of patients don't know their detailed family history because years ago, people didn't talk about this stuff. Right. right. So it's, um, it's really great that you're, you know, advocating for earlier testing. So that's so important. Yeah. I think it really is. It could have made such a difference, you know, maybe, I would have been an earlier stage. I was diagnosed at a stage to be um, due to the size of my tumor and I had some lymph nodes involved. So, you know, when I went the year before, 
I, I'm sure I had it. When you compare my um, imaging, it's not that anybody missed anything. It's, it's to nobody's fault. It's, but perhaps a little bit more digging, I, I could have found out a little bit sooner that something was going on. And how quickly after your diagnosis did you get the genetic testing? Was it right at the time of your diagnosis? Yeah, they say anybody under 50, they, you know, they push through that has a cancer diagnosis. Um, and they were really suspicious that I had, um, the BRCA1. I mean, the genetic counselor was great. She was like, you be prepared. We often see this. Um, and what's really interesting is my dad was diagnosed with cancer the same day as I was. So he had a diagnosis of prostate cancer. We got a call like in the same hour window, which is yeah, really ironic. So when I told the genetic counselor that she's like, Oh, it's your dad. Yeah. I mean, we see this often, you know, the, the fathers with prostate cancer, the daughters with breast cancer and a BRCA mutation, we see this all the time. And so we prepared ourselves. So then when we sat in our family genetic counseling meeting and they said, we're going to get right to it because we know everyone thinks they're prepared, but um, Carla, you're the carrier. And, and my mom's, it was alarming. It was really alarming. And what happened kind of then after that point? Um, so after that, you know, I, I had known I was a carrier. So then my mom wanted to take care of herself and make sure she was doing the preventative measures. So she did a, a preventative double mastectomy. And then she actually at the same age as me at 36, she had a full hysterectomy due to some other complications. So that probably actually reduced her risk of developing breast yeah. cancer. So it was a blessing in disguise. And then what did your treatment look like? Um, yeah, so I did uh, ACT. So I did eight rounds. I did a dose dense of Taxol. So I know everyone's is different, but I did four and four. And uh, then I did my surgery, which was a double mastectomy. I had 22 lymph nodes taken out and I did reconstruction at the same time. So I had expanders put in. Um, and then I got the results that I had a... Um, complete pathological response. So the, the recommendation was to still do radiation. So I did five weeks, five days, five weeks of, um, radiation. And then I did a full hysterectomy <laughs> and then I did some more reconstruction in September. So I did a lot in just like a little bit over a year. <laughs> And what was all that like going through as a young mom working, you know, what was, what was it like kind of outside of the, the infusion, you know, times? Yeah, it was um, really interesting because right. My daughter at the time was in kindergarten, but we weren't sending her to school because of COVID. So um, a typical situation would be like the parent gets treated and relaxes at home and recovers while their child is in a school setting. And uh, we had a lot of help here with parents. And um, my daughter watched me go through everything because she did school from home for that entire year up until spring break when I was vaccinated and um, we felt like it was safe for her to go back. So it was insanity. I, I mean, we made the best of it. I also, as bad as I felt having to have her see me at my worst, I also looked at it like, my gosh, how lucky am I that my husband's working from home right now? And then I get all this family time. So I try to look at it in that perspective of, um, you know, we're going to soak up this time. I didn't know what my time would be for a while. I didn't who knew? I didn't know if I was going to respond to treatment if I wasn't and what kind of time I had left. So in that perspective, I, I really was thankful for that time I had with my family and, and just tried to live it up as much as I could. But, you know, it was, it was difficult to uh, not have that alone time, you know, or, if, or feel guilty. Like if I was upstairs resting, I'm like, everyone is downstairs. My daughter's home. Like I should be with them. So I don't know. I was sort of torn. I think there's so much 
push pull either way yeah. right about what we should be doing what we think we should be doing yeah and but I think like you said trying to say look this is an awful situation but making the best of it mm-hmm. now what did you tell your daughter you know I'm always I think it's so important to kind of have those conversations because a lot of times people ask me well which I tell my kids. And so I always like to hear other people's experiences. Yeah. I mean, I was given, I felt right when I was diagnosed, I was given all these books like, oh, here, read this with your daughter. And and I couldn't even open up those books. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, for me, I knew that um, I had to be honest, but just enough for her age. So I had her feel the lump and, um, I let her name it. So she named it Bolly Boo. Cause it felt like a ball to her. And I guess she thought it was a cute name. And then when she saw my port, um, you know, I explained to her that this was the medicine going to Bolly Boo to shrink it. So she called my port shrinker dinker. <laughs> um, so I felt like giving her some control over naming the pieces was helpful. And I never told her that directly that I had cancer. Um, I just didn't feel the need to it. We, there had been a situation where she knew a a peer had lost um, their mother to breast cancer. And I just felt strongly that she was still very aware of that and she would make a connection. And I didn't want her to think that I was dying. So I, I just left it at that. And I told her that I was going to get sick. I would be tired. My hair would fall out. Um, and I was honest about all of those every step of the way, you know, I have, I had her help me. Um, when I did get my hair cut, the stylist asked, you know, do you want to cut a part of mommy's ponytail? So I, you know, involving her in every part that I could, I thought, was helpful or giving her the choice, you know, not making her, but just giving her the choice, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to be present for this? Um, and I, I told her, you know, as hard as it was going to be, it's, it's almost like a continuous party because everyone's going to be at our house. Like we, we have Nana and we have Mima and we have Gramps and, you know, Rocky, my brother, like everyone, they're going to be here for us. And it's a continuous party. So, um, you know, she was loved on and we just, that's how that's in a nutshell. That's how we handled most of it. And as now, as she's older, have you told her anything else about that time? Oh. You use the words breast cancer. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. So yeah, when I was all finished with active treatment, we did tell her, um, I felt ready and I felt like it was safe because, I knew that I didn't have any more work to do in terms of, um, you know, oral chemo or anything like that. So I told her, you know, I asked her, do you want to know, you know, I never told you, I just did it very like laissez-faire. Like I never even told you the name of what I had. Do you want to know? And she said, sure. And I said, it was breast cancer. And she just came right up to me and hugged me and cried, but sort of laughed. Like you could just sense there was a, there was relief and release there. Um, and I think she knew, I mean, she would see commercials come on, uh, you know, people that looked like me at the time, cancer commercials, you can't really get away from those. So she would sort of look at the screen, look at me and be like, I know what's going on. But so it was like a weight off our shoulder when we finally just talked about it, but I don't regret how I initiated it. I think it really worked for our family and it was a healthy way. Um, so, and I think what you just hit on is really important is that it worked for your family and what worked for your family may not work for a different family, you know? And so sometimes kids are older, sometimes kids are younger. And I think you have to know your kids and know what they're able to handle. Exactly. Right. They have a fun experience with cancer, you know, like for us, it's just, we knew it was too soon from somebody else's experience and she was aware. So, yeah. And let's talk a little bit about your decision to get your ovaries removed. Mm -hmm. That was, must've been hard. Yeah, it was. I, 
I was given the choice to, you know, freeze eggs and in case I wanted another child. And my husband and I just looked at each other and we're like, no, let's just, we need to go on with treatment. So I don't regret that. Um, you know, we were happy with our family and I, we just wanted to be, um, all healthy. So yeah. And then when it was the talk for the hysterectomy, I remember getting my period for the last time. And I just was hysterical crying. And I remember texting a bunch of my girlfriends, like, I can't stop crying. Like I should be happy. No more periods. Yay. But like, I don't, I don't know how to feel about this. And, you know, they all validated me and they all got me beautiful hanky panky thongs. To, like, <laughs> they were so great. Um, cause yeah, I just, I remember feeling a loss at that point, but, um, I didn't want, you know, that 60% chance of developing ovarian cancer just seemed too high for me to keep my ovaries. So, um, in the end, I I'm happy I did it. And, uh, I have a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So also that, you know, looking forward to, not having such painful ovulation was a win-win for me as well. And um, then af- after you get them out, right? So that put you into immediate menopause. Yeah. I mean, chemotherapy causes menopause, but sometimes ovarian function recovers. Have you experienced any physical or emotional changes since getting the ovaries out? So in terms of um, emotional changes or hormonal, n- no, not that I can really pinpoint, I feel so great. I feel, and people can't believe this, but I feel the healthiest I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, I'm, I made some pretty radical lifestyle changes. So I think that is contributing, but no, uh, but I have to be honest. I did just get a call that I have moderate osteopenia. So I did just my DEXA scan last week. So, um, I'm going to start Correct me if I'm wrong, but Boniva, I think. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm ready at CVS. So I have to go pick it up. So this is all just happening now. So yeah, there are some physical changes and I, and I was aware that this could happen. Um, so I, I've been walking around. I already bought those Bala bangles. Yeah, those, are, those are great. <laughs> I'm like walking around. They're on my ankles right now. And I'm just sort of figuring out, um, some different kind of exercise. I know I should stop running, um, as much as I, not that I was a big runner, but um, well, running actually, so running is a great weight bearing exercise. Okay. So that actually helps to build bones. You know, the, where a lot of people kind of don't realize is with, when you want to strengthen bones, a lot of people do cycling because they think it's low impact and that's going to be great, but cycling is not a weight bearing activity. So you really, as long as you feel good now, sometimes people go, well, too much running is not good on your joints, but it's not necessarily going to cause a fracture. Mm -hmm. But what I always recommend on top of the cardio is weight is strength, you know, weight uh, training and strength training. And then also yoga or some sort of like single, like balance work and yoga is perfect for that. Because, you know, if you think about if you do have osteopenia or osteoporosis, you're at higher risk of fracture. And how do we fracture? A lot of times we fall. So if we get better at the balance work, then you're less likely to fall. Yeah. So I'll add in some yoga, Pilates, just more than I, I have been. I'm going to make that a priority for sure. So yeah, bones are definitely a menopause side effect. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew the risk and some people told me don't do it, you know, wait till you're 40, but I didn't want to take the chance. I, I already had this diagnosis and, you know, I had mentioned I have, um, or had polycystic ovarian syndrome. So I was having really painful ovulation without the pill. And I wasn't going to go back on the pill because I didn't want the hormones. So I just figured I'm going to take the risk of bone density loss and I'm going to go through and just do the hysterectomy at 30. I guess I was 35 at the time. Um, so I'll deal with it. Uh, you know, I said, I said to my husband, I can handle whatever the news of the DEXA scan was. It can't be as bad as a diagnosis of cancer, right? Like, yeah, 
I can, I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll make changes and adapt to whatever I need to do. And realistically, getting your ovaries out at 35 or 40 is not going to significantly impact your osteopenia risk. You know, Mm -hmm. even if maybe you didn't get it now, a few years from now, this would have happened. So I think, you know, when you make decisions, I think the way you're making them is perfect is really thinking about the short term goal, but also the long term, right? right? And how do I make the decisions with what is best for me and not necessarily what's best for somebody else? Right. Right. You talked about radical lifestyle changes. Walk me through that. Yeah. So when I was at the end, the tail end of chemo, I started um, getting involved in functional medicine because I was curious, other than my genetic uh, mutation, maybe what was the root cause of getting breast cancer, right? Because there's plenty of other people that have these mutations, but they don't get breast cancer. So I was curious if I could do some labs and figure some things out and, um, add in some supplements, maybe to see if I was deficient in areas and, and what exercise would be best for me, what food. So I, I did, I dug really deep with somebody and, um, I found out that I had some, weird things going on with my B vitamins and magnesium and zinc. Um, and there were a host of other things, but in a nutshell, I basically add in, uh, different supplements daily. Um, so the vitamin D is a no brainer. I think, you know, that's something all of our oncologists are hopefully everyone is being told to do with the D three K two. Um, but you know, I do the, the calcium D glucurate. <laughs> um, I have them all here and the reishi and the turkey tail. <laughs> I was just taking them before I talked to you and, um, magnesium breakthrough things that were, I was really deficient in all my life and I didn't realize. So, um, adding in those daily plus I looked at um, my microbiome, I did a specific like gut health, uh, sensitivity test, and I worked on reducing some different foods and I could bring them back in. But during treatment, I really was, I was pretty, um, pretty adamant about cutting out like a starches and trying to repair some of the, the work of my my gut because 80% of your immunity lies in your gut. So, um, that was really important to me to, to not, I don't want to call it a detox, but just give my gut some healing time. And, uh, yeah, I, I learned to like go outside in the morning. I have two puppies and I, they came right before COVID or one of them did. And then we got another one during COVID, but, Um, the importance of waking up and seeing like the sunrise and like walking them after dinner and seeing the sunset to um, work on sleep patterns. And, and I'm not great at sleep because I love watching TV before I fall asleep, but um, yeah, just being more aware of, of good sleep patterns and how that can impact your health. Um, I wasn't so great at that. I would be someone that would go, go, go during the day. I'm like, oh, I can write this report at night. It's fine. I don't do that anymore. No way. Um, and yeah, the exercise, like uh, I had mentioned before, um, you know, I want to do what's right for my body. So I, I did a certain test that looks at your genes and it tells you actually what your genes say about the exercise that's best for you. It actually says weight bearing is best for me and which is pretty awesome. Uh, so yeah, and incorporating things that are specific to my genes and, you know, I've heard the saying, like you can turn your genes on, you can turn them off. Um, I say, I don't, (laughs) I'm, I'm careful with that because if something were to happen again, I don't want to blame myself for that. So I just had this idea and notion in my mind that like the food I eat is healing and medicine to me because I can't take anything after triple negative. There's no targeted therapy. There's nothing for me to take like somebody with a hormonal therapy Mm -hmm. take. Right. So 
for me, if I look at my supplements and I look at my intake of food and I think that that's healing and it's, and the food is medicine to me, it makes, makes me have control. It makes me feel empowered and it makes me feel like I'm doing something to help reduce my risk. And that's what, that's what I find important. And that's, those are the kind of lifestyle and radical changes I made because I felt so out of control um, with my diagnosis and I needed, I'm a type A personality. Like I needed it back. And, um, for me, I found this is where my control is, <laughs> um, when I'm so out of control, like, you know, if I'm having a day where the fear monster is like on my shoulder and I I'm thinking about recurrence or something, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to meditate while I'm doing that or do a gratitude podcast, whatever it is, and listen to it. And um, I'm going to eat like something great that involves everything like antioxidants, anti-inflammation. And that's where I feel better at the end of the day, because I've done something good for myself, for my mind and my body. I love that. You know, I think so many people struggle with those two things that you talked about, right? How to reconcile the fact that you're, when you're done with triple negative treatment, there's nothing that you take on a day-to-day basis and also how to live and handle that fear of recurrence, that magnetic pull that drives at you. And I think what you said is so right on that, you know, what we put in our body, how we move our body, that's what you do every single day to control recurrence. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. nothing will prevent a recurrence, but it's all going toward that risk reduction and that feeling like you are able to do something to mitigate that risk. Yeah. It feels so good. I'm like, I count those minutes to get to that 150 minutes a week. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a really good accomplishment at the end of the day or end of the week. Um, So yeah, if somebody's listening that feels like they lost all control with a diagnosis, I, I really encourage, um, look at lifestyle to see how you can help yourself because it's been pretty powerful for me. Not to mention the fact that going through menopause at an early age, you know, has cardiovascular risk. And so all of those behaviors are also going to modify your cardiovascular risk. There was just a paper that came out that I'm going to share about that looked at patients with breast cancer or history of breast cancer and people who did not have breast cancer. And the breast cancer survivors have a much higher cardiovascular risk, right? But that's a modifiable risk. So while we can't 100% control recurrence, very often we can't control a recurrence, we can very often control the development of high blood pressure and high cholesterol through exercise and movement and through the foods that we eat. Yeah. Yes. I think, I mean, it's so powerful and I think it's a hot topic. I think, you know, people can get upset over it because yes, the people are always looking for evidence-based, like, how do you know that that actually helps? And, but I can also say from personal experience, when I, I can hundred percent, honestly say, I have never felt better. And I think that says something. If I, I could say that during my radiation treatment, if I could speak those words during my radiation treatment, there's something, there's something to be said about that. Um, so, so yes, I think that those are the radical changes I, I incorporated and, um, you know, I'm not perfect, you know, but it's a lot better than I ever was. And it's made such a that's the thing, right? We make these small changes and we're constantly working on how can we be better? Yeah. And it also, you know, it impacts not just you. I mean, it, you feel a lot better, which I think go, make, makes going through day to day a better, you know, a better experience. But think about how those changes impact your family members, your child. They right. see the healthy choices that you make. And I think that leads them down the road to really prioritize those things for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I think my husband is totally on board with the, you know, plant-based eating in our house. And then if we get takeout or we go out to dinner, he gets what he wants, but you know, what I buy at the store and what I make for dinner, it's like, that's what he's eating too. And he feels 
fantastic. And um, he incorporated more exercise over the past year and he looks the best he's ever looked. So yes, it definitely has a domino effect. When I have these conversations very often, people will tell me, well, what about if your partner does not want to get on board, right? Mm -hmm. Or your partner is not doesn't want to make those lifestyle choices. So, you know, what I tell people, and I want to hear your kind of conversation that you had is that, you know, these are big changes that you really can't make on your own. And I think you have to have this honest conversation about how do we compromise, but I can't do this alone because Mm -hmm. I can't cook. I can't make two different meals. I can't have two sets of groceries. And so when you approached your husband and said, you were going to make these changes, what was that like? Yeah. So before going completely plant-based, I, I was almost there. I was like a pescatarian. I was eating fish and eggs, but not, um, anything else, like Mm -hmm. no other meats. And then I had cut out dairy, like after I had my daughter. So I was almost there. So then when I said I was going to go full force and completely plant-based vegan. And, um, I wasn't going to incorporate anything with like added sugars. Um, you know, he thought, I think he thought it could be difficult, but then he saw how I was, he was for it. He's like anything that you, I support you. Um, and he continued to sort of eat in his own way, but as he saw how good I felt, and then as he saw how I, I could cook and, how happy I was. And he would taste some of my food. The one day he was like, I just, I want to eat that. It's good. It, you know, I, you don't have to make two meals. We don't have to do this. Let's just, I'll eat whatever you're eating. And he made the decision. I'll just, when we go out and we order and, you know, from a restaurant, I'll get, I'll splurge then and Mm -hmm. get the red meat that I don't get when I'm home with you. So he he was, he was all for for it. So I'm very very lucky. No, it's, I think it's great. And, you know, I think what you're describing is perfect, right? You are, you know, he gets to still have some of the food that he likes, but it's not happening on a daily basis. Because I think I just hear a lot from my patients about how they want to make the change, but they, they don't, they're not able to because now their kids want this and their partner wants something else. And it's just, it's too much. And there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. Yeah, now I could see and you know, I have one child so I could see how, you know, even have more than one could be a deal breaker there. Like it's just it could be chaotic. And you know, the other piece of it is it's it's expensive too. When you're living solely off like more produce and especially now with inflation and you go to the supermarket and you're you know, you go through all the vegetables and fruits that we do, it's, it's an expensive lifestyle. So I feel fortunate and I I know I'm privileged to be able to keep to this kind of lifestyle. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that it's not available for everyone to do because that's just the way it is. It's, it's really expensive to be healthy. And I, I hate that. And I wish I could change that for everyone. It's, Well, it is, you know, I think one of the things we have this motto self-care, right? Self-care isn't selfish, but one of the things I think we need to add is that self-care is expensive. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about you have to, it's a privilege to be able to buy healthy food for your family, to have the time to exercise. Yeah. No dedicated time. I always tell people, look, if you don't have time, let's do five minutes here, five minutes here, but to get 150 minutes it's hard sometimes, you know, people who work multiple jobs have a lot of responsibilities after work and all of those things. Now you have to do this and you should find time to stretch. And now you got to get some yoga. Like all of those things are expensive in terms of both time and financial in certain, in certain, you know, situations. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard. So, um, I know how lucky I am and I don't take that for granted at all. So, you know, I, I, definitely. Um, I've, I have a friend, we have some thoughts on how we can help people with ideas around food. So they don't feel this burden of like, this is so overwhelming in terms of what are these items you're talking about? Where do I find them? They cost so much. I'm just putting together something where, um, it's feasible all around. So everyone can have access. Yeah. I think that that's wonderful. I mean, there is a way to do plant-based on a budget. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes when you think about if you are cutting out the fish or the chicken or the steak, those are expensive options too. Um, And certain things don't have to be organic. I mean, so there are ways that you can do this on a budget, but if you don't have the time or the resource to figure that out, then sometimes it's just easier, I think, to do what you've always been doing. Right. Right. Yeah. So it can definitely be intimidating. Um, now I want to hear before we wrap up a little bit about some of the fundraising work that you've been doing. Oh, yes. So all my life I've been into giving back. I've always been, my family from a young age got me into volunteering. That was just something we did as a family. So it's been in my blood. Um, and then I remember being at, uh, my, probably at one of my chemos, like, how do I ever give back to all of these wonderful human beings who have helped me? And so I started making bracelets in my radiation treatment. They were my lucky charms to the staff because I was finishing treatment on St. Patrick's day. So I, I thought, okay, I'm going to give them some bracelets and a whole department. So I did that but I was so addicted to beating like the bracelets. I mean, my daughter looked at me one morning and she's like, mommy, you're addicted. You wake up and start beating. And I'm like, I know, but they're like worse things to be addicted to. So this is okay. But it became such an outlet for me. And, you know, I wasn't on the internet, Googling things or on social media, getting my going down rabbit holes. I was really just taking so much of my time and doing something so good for my mental health and making other people happy with these bracelets. I'm like, this is great. And I was showering one day and I thought, wait a second, I could do this beating cancer together. And so I jumped out of the shower and I went on Instagram. I'm like, it's going to be taken. This name is too good to be true. And I put it in Instagram and it wasn't taken. So I added it really fast. And then I messaged one of my friends and I told her my idea and she's like, okay, I'll help you. Like, I'll help you work on a logo. Like, this is great. You need to do this. And, uh, yeah, from, it was that day. It was like March 25th, 2021. I think I started, uh, making bracelets and posting them and giving them to organizations close to my heart that had helped me throughout my journey. And then also, you know, I met such wonderful women and I continue to do so on social media and some of them have bucket lists that they're trying to fulfill. And, um, I offer to help with that by doing hundred percent profit to give back to them. So yeah, to date, I've definitely now it was just under 20,000, but I can calculate. I have a whole spreadsheet definitely have reached 20,000 and just over a year. Um, where I have given back to organizations or people. And it's amazing. That is wonderful. It's really sweet. Yeah. I love it. It's not like an official nonprofit or anything like that. It's just, it's just something I do as a hobby on the side. Um, And I also, I encourage people to really think about volunteering or fundraising because when you find purpose and, and joy through your cancer journey, it can really help with your physical and mental healing as well. And that's something I really found to be true. What are some of your organizations that you've loved to support? Um, I have supported Living Beyond Breast Cancer and the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and JScreen, which is a nonprofit that will screen, they'll send you um, a swab kit and then you send it back and they will tell you your results through a telehealth um, if you carry any genetic mutations. And is that for everybody or so it's for all Jewish people, regardless of family history? It's for anyone. And you don't even have to be Jewish. Yeah, it's okay. for anyone. And um, I feel strongly about their organization because they are not only are they a wealth of knowledge, their geneticists are amazing. Um, but they also have kits that cost either 150 or 199, depending if you do reproductive or you do reproductive and cancer susceptibility gene. And when you look at that cost, it's really not that much because I have had friends 
who ask their doctor for a script for genetic testing, and then they get, you know, a bill that they owe $1,500 and they didn't know like, Oh, I thought it was covered. And it's like, Oh, well this much was covered, you know, X amount was covered. So if you, if you can, um, you know, afford that great. And if not, they'll work with you. They will not let anyone walk away due to finances. They will work with you and, and get you a kit and work out the cost. So they are incredible. That's um, wonderful. That's a great, uh, great organization that, yeah. you know, I've kind of heard of peripherally, but it's nice to hear a little bit more about them. Yeah. You'll have to get somebody on your podcast. I know I'm already thinking yeah. that it would be good. Cause you know, one of the things is that we really haven't talked too much about genetic testing and I, there's a lot of limitations. I was just reviewing a paper and you know, all women with ovarian cancer should get genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And only 35% of them do. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's crazy because it impacts so much. It impacts your prognosis, your treatment, your family's treatment and diagnoses. And part of that is that there is a lack of genetic counselors mm-hmm. and oncologists, you know, sometimes we are not either comfortable or insurance requires that a, you have a genetic counselor for testing or cost $1,500. I mean, there's so many barriers to this. So I think any way that we can try to dispel some of these barriers is really, is really huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel strongly, you know, about changing something with the whole genetic screening piece and, you know, start, I think, I think my audience for that would be a gynecologist, but I'm not so sure because I think if we can really get a good discussion in there and get them comfortable linking us. I know you just said something about geneticists need to be on board to be able to read the results. But I think, I think that is actually a piece to why they don't refer out all the time for genetic screening. I think because they don't know how to interpret the results. So it's just easier to not give the referral and just, well, if you want genetic testing, you know, figure it out or, you can go your own way. There's so many, there's so many barriers. And I think partly is the culture that medicine has kind of created where it's like, you have 15, 20 minute visit. It's just like one more thing that you, you know, you have to do and people sometimes don't think about it. So I think we need education and it needs to be simple. You know, it needs to be almost kind of like you go to your gynecologist's office, you fill out a survey that on an iPad or something that automatically says, based on your history, you are eligible for testing mm-hmm. and here's the referral. And so the more we can automate the process, the more we can put checklists on the process, the more likely it is that things will happen. I love that. Yeah. I mean, yes, that's what I, I don't want another Abby match out there. Like when I tell you, I went from doctor to doctor all my life, filling out these forms. Yes. I'm of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. It's like, I always check the box, but I was failed because no one ever said anything to me, you know, when they asked if I had breast cancer in my family and I said, no, like that's where it ended, but Mm -hmm. you knew I was Jewish and you knew I was of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. And what I know now is there should have been a discussion about my risk factor. Exactly. And I, I think that part of it is really digging deeper into the family history and not just asking about breast and ovarian cancer, I think that we need to change the culture where all Jewish women of Ashkenazi you know, origin are being sent routinely for genetic testing. But until our insurance companies change that, mm-hmm. then at least having a much more in-depth family history, because it could have been picked up based on your, you know, um, pancreatic cancer history. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, my mom, you know, she's more at they explained she's more at risk for that because of the degree of separation between myself and those uncles is larger, but she has a higher chance of developing because they're her first. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that there, there's so much work to be done in this field and, and that's so great that you're really thinking about how you can make a difference in it. Yes. Yes. And I, I will, I'm not going to (laughs) stop because I need to do this for my daughter too. Right. Like, Yeah. By the time she tests that there's a cure for breast cancer, um, that would be great. And I, 
you know, I pray by the time she tests, there's something more for these, the BRCA mutation. I mean, there's a lot out there right now, um, but I hope there's something that will help her because she has a 50% chance of yeah. being a carrier. I'm hopeful by the time that she will test one that she's negative, but if she is not, that there's a lot of research now about, you know, there are actually some vaccine studies for the BRCA mutation carriers. And so hopefully we'll actually get to a point where we're not, we, we don't, we have great, op, we have some good options about how to treat the cancer, but we really need to get to a point where we're preventing the yeah. cancer, right? And, um, and that's, you know, right now we know that if you have a bilateral mastectomy, that really cuts your risk. But what if there are other ways that we could do that without having patients get a bilateral mastectomy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I'm hopeful. Right. That's all we can do. And keep, yeah. keep, keep working on it. Yep. Abby, where can listeners connect with you online? They can find me on Instagram at Abby Match, A B B Y M A T C H. And then my fundraising page is Beating Cancer Together. And that's B E A D I N G, Cancer Together. Perfect. Um, anything else that you want to share before we wrap up? No, I think we got it all covered. I'm just, I'm so grateful for doctors like you who really take the time and help so many women in our community. And, you know, in addition to what you do in the office, just the, all of the work you do on social media. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I think it is a really honest look at what life after cancer is like. And as I always say, it is not linear, it is messy. And it's important to have these conversations so that when people are finishing treatment and entering that next step, that they know that it's not easy and that it's hard, but that there is a way through it. You can find Abby on Instagram at Abby Match, and her bracelet page is Beating Cancer Together. As always, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. If you enjoy these podcast episodes, I am always honored if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify is that is really the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all again for listening. I hope this episode taught you something about genetic testing, about cancer treatment, about survivorship, and I will see all of you soon.